good as already happened. Okay, and this reminds us that when God promises something, whether it's positive or whether it's negative, it's as good as done. Now, in verse 7, notice okay, that there's three words that, that say something similar, but they're different Hebrew verbs. Okay, they're translated forsaken, left, and given. And they all have slightly different nuances, but effectively stress the same thing. Okay, they were going to be handed over, let go, delivered unto, given up, forsaken. So that's not the type of action that we like to hear when it's associated with us, is it? Okay, you have been let go. That's not a nice thing to hear from your boss. But it's even worse when it's God deciding to take such action. And what we read here is that the Lord is going to remove his sustaining and protective power from his people. And he hands them over to the enemy. Okay, and notice how this stresses the control of God. Okay, this could not happen a moment before or a moment after God gave these orders. And remember that the enemy that it's speaking of here is Babylon. Okay, at that point in time, they were the most powerful force in the whole world. And yet even the might of Nebuchadnezzar and his armies could not move God's people until they received the divine clearance. Okay, that's the sovereignty of God, and that's very comforting. Okay, notice there is more repetition found in verse 7. And in fact, this is repeated throughout the text. And it's very important for us to identify this for a number of reasons. Okay, least of all, because it shows us the mood of the text. And notice that despite the decision to hand them over, God's love and care has not ceased. Okay, God still loves his people despite making this decision. And hence we learn that it's a false dichotomy when people say that love does not discipline. Okay, that love just accepts everything. That love is all about tolerance. That's not true. And it's important for us to identify and understand that point because that's the message aggressively preached by our culture. Okay, we're bombarded with this message. Love is all about acceptance. It's about tolerance. But notice God punishes his people. Okay, God, God is handing them over, but he still loves them. Okay, pay close attention to the language in verse 7. Okay, it says, mine house. House is referring to people, so he's calling them mine people. That's present tense, not past. He then says mine heritage, so God's present possession. Then he says dearly beloved of my soul. What, what a beautiful phrase that is. And again, that's a present reality. He, he doesn't say that this is how they were regarded in the past. Okay, this is not how God regarded them when he first brought them out of Egypt, but, but not anymore. But rather, this is still true in the present tense. And this whole account is filled with what we call possessive adjectives. So this reveals that this love relationship was not over. Okay, Judah was still beloved by God. Okay, you know, despite all of this judgment that was going to be unleashed, he still Love them. And the text seems to ooze hurt from the Lord. Okay, he, he was hurt how his people had acted. Now we need to understand that 
God's emotions aren't the same as ours. Okay? He does, we, we are different to God. So he's not acted upon like we are. He's in perfect control and he's not influenced by emotions in the same way as we are. And yet the text gives the strong impression of God being hurt. You know, the wounded lover is one appropriate image. Or, or it's the parent who, who has had to ask their child to leave the family home because of their constant despicable behavior. Okay, that seems to be the sense of what's conveyed. See, the Lord was not delighted to make this decision. This was not something that thrilled his soul. You know, finally, I get to unleash judgment on them. Okay, that was not the motive behind the decision. Although this was a just and right decision... And it would ultimately glorify God because that's what all judgment does. Yet in human terms, this was not a call made easily. This was not one that thrilled the Lord. Now the text moves on to explain in more detail what it means to be handed over to the enemies. And verse 8 gives a glimpse into the rationale and the justice of the decision that God had made through the means of a metaphor. We're told that Judah was a lion in the forest crying against the Lord. Now the image of Judah being a lion is very interesting because in Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he says in verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion who shall raise, rose him up. Okay, so Judah was supposed to be God's lion. Okay, Jesus is referred to as the Lion of Judah. Okay, but for right here, Judah was roaring against God. Okay, this is a roar of rebellion, roaring against the Creator. So Judah had turned on the Lord. The Lord had reached out to them in love, but a mighty roar of rebellion filled the jungle. Okay, this is like, you know, biting the hand that feeds you. That's what Judah had done. And as a result of this rebellion, we read the spine-tingling words that end verse 8. Okay, the people didn't want God, they rejected him, so the Lord gave them what they wanted. Verse 8 finishes, therefore have I hated it. Okay, the Lord's loving protection and provision would be removed. It's referred to as hate. Now the idea of hate here is not a violent and angry emotion but rather it's a decision to reject the people for a time you know as one author described this phrase of God hating them he said it is to turn Paul's statement in Romans 8 upside down if God be against us who can be for us okay and that's not a good place to be as Judah was about to find out now this rejection is further unveiled as the text progresses okay verse 9 uses another word picture that vividly reveals the graphic nature of what was coming Judas referred to as a speckled bird okay now what's the idea here well the idea is okay there was okay they were a different type of bird okay they they stood out from other birds and hence they were attacked by the other birds due to to their difference, okay, they would be packed into submission. Okay, my parents used to have chooks, and they had one chook that was a different color, 
and that chook was bullied by the other chooks. Same thing happens with humans. If someone is a little different, they are inevitably ridiculed and mistreated. And this is what would happen to Judah. They were a unique bird. Maybe this is a reference to the special favor God had lavished upon them. But a time was coming when the other nations would move in for the kill. Like like wild beasts, they would devour them. And reluctantly, the Lord would allow them to attack. And the Lord would allow them to be successful. Okay, so this is focusing on the loving lament of what would happen to God's people. The text continues with the loving lament, but now the focus shifts to the land. Okay, so the people had been in the focus, now to the land. Verse 10 begins by referencing the pastors. Okay, pastors here isn't referring to someone like me, but rather it's the varying leaders, not just the, the spiritual leaders. So it, it was kings, it was army generals. And in this context, it's referring to the leaders of the nations who would attack them. Okay, so the generals with their armies would completely devour the land. It would be decimated. Okay, we read all, all of the crops, all of the vineyards would be stripped bare. The, the land would be trampled. Okay, my grandparents have a farm, and when the cows get into the, into the house paddock, they trample the lawn, they trample the gardens. Okay, they're not very popular. That's the idea here. The invading armies, they would flatten everything. And what was usually very fertile agricultural land would become like a desolate wilderness. Okay, it would look like the desert in the middle of Australia. Okay, nothing green, everything's dead, no sign of life, a very sad sight. Verse 11 stresses the the tragedy of this coming judgment. And you'll notice the word desolate occurs three times. It's like desolate, desolate, desolate. Okay, that that is the sense. The whole land was desolate. And scholars say that the English language cannot capture the sense of the Hebrew. It's very strong, it's very striking, and it stresses the completeness and finality of what was coming. And this comes out very clearly in the first phrase of verse 12. Okay, the spoilers or the destroyers, they wouldn't leave anything. Okay, that's the sense of the phrase from the high places through to the wilderness. Nothing would be untouched. Everything would be ransacked. And as verse 12 goes on to say, okay, from one end of the earth to the other. Okay, this was comprehensive. And we see another interesting detail given in verse 13 to further explain this judgment. It says, the people sowed their wheat, but they reaped thorns. So this tells us a a couple of things. Due to the pending invasion, they would be unable to look after their crops. So they would plant wheat seed, but they couldn't get to their crops to look after them due to the armies invading, and hence they got choked out by the weeds or they got trampled by the armies. Okay, so they put in all of this work to plant the crop, but they didn't reap the harvest. And obviously this makes a lot of sense as well, because when Babylon invades, they all flee to Jerusalem. Okay, shut the gates, try to protect themselves. They are enclosed inside, can't get out, hence they can't look after their crops. But the planting of the seed also shows that the people continued on to the very end. 
Okay, they would endeavor to do business as usual until the bitter end. And this reveals the stubbornness and hard hearts of the people. Okay, the prophets had preached and preached and preached. Judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. Okay, Jeremiah preached this throughout his whole ministry, a long ministry, okay, as did other prophets. And yet they didn't listen. Okay, that they continued to try and do life as normal. Okay, planting their crops reveals how hard-hearted and stubborn they were. Okay, and understand that these failed crops were damning evidence of God's displeasure. Okay, in the curses listed in Deuteronomy 28, okay, Deuteronomy 28 lists varying curses if they broke the covenant, so if they were not faithful to the agreements they'd made with God. And verse 38 says, Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field, which they had done, and thou shalt gather but little in, okay, which happened. But it says there, for the locust shall consume it. Leviticus 26, 16, which again is speaking of punishment for disobedience, says, and ye shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Okay, so crop failure was a clear indicator of divine judgment. Okay, remembering this is an agricultural society. So this text paints a very bleak picture of what was coming. Okay, the land was going to be completely stripped bare, turned upside down, inside out, absolute desolation. It would be like a desert after the armies invaded. Okay, the promised land would become a wasteland. But what I want you to notice is that this devastating judgment was the Lord's doing. And perhaps that's a little bit shocking for us. You know, why would the Lord do this? Notice in verse 12, it says, the sword of the Lord shall devour the land. Now, that's a very graphic image. Okay, the invading armies were a weapon used by the Lord to unleash, according to verse 13, the fierce anger of the Lord. Okay, so, so what we have here is the Lord turning on his own people due to their covenantal unfaithfulness, due to their great wickedness. And he claims that he is the one behind the devastating actions of the enemies. Okay, the enemies, Babylon, they would be an instrument to execute the covenant curses. Now, the Lord still loved his people, and yet they were so ingrained in their rebellion that they were so deep in idolatry that their unfaithfulness was like a stain on a garment that you just can't get off no matter what you try. So hard was their hearts that they refused to hearken to the warnings. And yet despite showing unfathomable patience, that's by the Lord, the time had now arrived for the Lord to deal with his wayward and wicked people. And although this was necessary, it was not something that thrilled the Lord. Okay, this was all part of his loving lament of loss. So what does this lament from the Lord have to teach us? Okay, well, number one, it teaches us that love demands discipline, not excludes it. Okay, you know, we live in a time that says love just accepts and tolerates everything. But that's not the message of this text, and that's not the message of the Bible. Okay, we need to understand that real love will correct, and, and this is true in every single relationship. And we know this is true. Because God is love. Okay? Love is not just something God does, but it is who he is. And hence, 
Real love must be consistent with him. Okay, however we define love, our definition must be consistent with who God is because God is love. Okay, and here we learn that the Lord was going to discipline his people for their great wickedness. But this did not mean that he no longer loved them. In fact, he chastened them because he did love them. Okay, true love is willing to correct. Okay, so understand that God still does this. If you are a Christian, God will correct you if you are in sin. Okay, divine discipline is a part of the Christian life. This is a sign of the Father's love and care. So don't be shocked and don't be surprised by it. But we too need to be willing to correct in our relationships. Okay, the obvious one is the parent-child relationship. Okay, if you love your children, you will discipline them. Okay, the Bible says, he that spareth the rod hateth the child. So if you refuse to discipline your children, you actually hate them. Okay, that's, that's quite sobering. But also this willingness to correct needs to extend to all of our other relationships. Okay, if we love somebody, we will be willing to have those tough conversations. Okay, you know those ones that no one likes to have? We get nervous about them. Okay, but we're willing to confront and willing to challenge the sin in the lives of others. Okay, this needs to be part of our marriages. This needs to be part of our friendships. A willingness to lovingly and graciously correct. Okay, real love does not just tolerate and accept everything, but real love is willing to challenge and confront. The second thing we learn is that God understands what it's like to be abandoned. Okay, in this text, God has been betrayed and abandoned by his own people. Okay, and understand, he has done everything for them he's been so good and so gracious from Egypt right up until now and yet they spit in his face they they reject him so my friend our God knows what it's like to be abandoned Jesus certainly understands okay the culmination of rejection was the cross okay the place where he died for our sin there he was abandoned by just about everyone despite being there to die in their place. And there on the cross, he experienced the ultimate abandonment, that being of the Father. And hence our God is sympathetic and understanding when we are deserted. And perhaps you are or have endured abandonment in your life. Maybe a spouse left you or your children have Okay, have nothing to do with you, or your parents neglected you, or a friend has deserted you. These are painful experiences. Okay, and God knows your pain because he has experienced it before. Okay, he understands. He's sympathetic and wants to strengthen and encourage you and assist you through these challenging times. We don't serve a God who is untouched and unmoved by our suffering, but rather one who has endured it all and worse okay, and hence he understands and he cares for you and the third thing we learn is that god is not happy about sin okay we need to understand that god's okay, emotions are very different to ours you okay, need to understand god is different to us okay he's not compulsive like you and i And he isn't affected passively and involuntary like we so often are. So emotions don't sweep over him and seize control of him 
like what happens to you and I. He isn't forced to make decisions based on changing emotional estates like us. His affections are active and voluntary. But with that clarification in place, we do see in the text that God is not unmoved by the sin of his people. He's not indifferent toward sin. As one writer put it, our sins are painful to God. Our grumblings, complaints, moanings, rebellions, and arguments are like so many roarings in God's ear because our relationship with God is a love relationship. Okay, so this is clear from this divine lament, and that is yet another incentive to pursue righteousness. So this is the loving lament. Okay, this time it's not Jeremiah lamenting, but rather a lament from the Lord. Okay, but this lament takes an unexpected turn. Okay, this is a massive plot twist. Have you ever been watching a movie and then your jaw drops? Oh, whoa, I did not see that coming. It was a major plot twist. That's the idea in our second point entitled Grace Amidst the Lament. Okay, as I've just alluded to, this chapter concludes with a plot twist. It's been all about judgments, but now grace, like a shooting star, shoots across the dark skies of judgment. Okay, the promise of salvation is the bright shining light that invades the darkness. Okay, and this is the surprise of God's grace. We don't expect it at this point. But his grace is manifest in at least two ways in the text. The first is the deliverance of Judah. Okay, in verse 15, we have contained the gracious promise of a return to the land. Okay, that the Lord in his astonishing and glorious grace has not completely finished with his people. Okay, this judgment would be for but a time and the Lord would pluck them out of Babylon. Okay, that they would be rescued. They would be redeemed from Babylon. They would not be there forever. That there would be another exodus and they would return from exile. Okay, the Lord would have compassion on them. He will look upon them favorably, thus confirming the point that I've already made that he still loves them. And they would be brought back into the land. Okay, they would receive the inheritance from the Lord again. The promised land would be back in their possession. So the Lord in his stunning grace promises restoration. Okay, and, and that's astonishing. The people did not deserve that. Okay, there was nothing that they did to merit such Kindness, this is 100% grace. Okay, and we know that this gracious promise of restoration was fulfilled. Okay, we'll see this in more detail later in our study of Jeremiah, but at the determined time, okay, which was 70 years, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, we read about this in the book of Ezra, people returned to the land. They began the slow process of rebuilding. And understand, this was of utmost importance in the grand scheme of things. Because in order for Jesus to come, it required a functioning Jerusalem. So this is a stunning illustration of the grace of God. In giving his people another opportunity. That they didn't deserve it. God would have been justified in casting them aside permanently. But he didn't because he was faithful to his covenant. He honored his Commitment. That is our God. 
But the brightness of God's grace is only intensified as we continue because his grace is extended to the pagan nations. Okay, we see in verse 14 that the Lord would punish those who despised and abused his people. And here we see the tension between the sovereignty and providence of God and human accountability. God used these people as tools of judgment, and yet they were still held accountable for their actions. Now, what this tells us is that God did not need to bend their wills and make them do something that they didn't want to do. So it wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar and his arms like, whoa, whoa, we, we don't want to take, we don't want to attack Jerusalem. No way. And, and God has to manipulate their wills. Not at all. But rather he used their free will choices to accomplish his plans and his purposes, which makes them accountable. Okay, but what's completely shocking is the gracious invitation extended to the pagan people. Okay, we read here that the Lord invites them to partake in the blessings of the covenant community. That's amazing. Okay, what, what did they need to do? Okay, if they forsook Baal and, and swear allegiance to the one true and living God. Okay, if they did this, they could come into the covenant family. If they would follow Israel's religion, worship Israel's God, swear by his name, they would be included in the covenant family people that that's a stunning and remarkable invitation okay that there was hope of redemption even for israel's worst enemies but it would only be extended to those who accepted yahweh's lordship and sovereignty but if they refused then they would be subject to god's wrathful judgment now this gracious invitation okay, illustrates the grace of God that's manifest in the gospel. Okay, understand that the offer of the gospel, okay, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came and he died for our sins. Okay, the gospel is extended to all. Okay, the gracious invitation to have sins forgiven, be made right with God and to be saved from judgment in hell, it includes everybody. But just like with these pagan nations, one needs to meet one condition, that is repentance and faith. Okay, repent, that meaning to acknowledge and turn from your sin, faith to believe that Jesus is God and that his life, death, burial and resurrection is sufficient to pay for your sins and to save you. Okay, that there is no other condition. And this is the way for everybody. No, nobody is too evil. Nobody is too wicked. One does not have to meet a certain standard in order to qualify. You don't have to shape up before you'll be accepted. But rather simply come to Christ in faith, in all of one's brokenness, in all of one's wickedness, and he will save. That is truly amazing. Okay? And I trust that we're struck Again, by the wonder of the gospel and that it's for all mankind, that it includes Gentiles like you and me. It's not just for the Jews. That is good news. But we're also reminded from the text of the exclusivity of the gospel. Okay? And what that means is that there is only one way. 
There's only one way. These pagan nations could only become part of the covenant community by one way. And that was by forsaking Baal, forsaking all their other gods, and embracing the Lord as the only God. Okay, these nations couldn't be saved on their own terms, that they couldn't be saved through their own gods. Okay, there's only the one way that God prescribes. And this has always been God's way. Okay, that there are not many paths to God's. It's not the case of you have your way and I have mine. Islam has their way, Buddhism, theirs, Hinduism, another way, but they all lead to the same God. That's not true. Okay, although that's very popular to think that way, okay, everyone has their own way to God, that there are many windows to divine light, that's not the message of the gospel. The Bible is clear. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus declared, I am the way. No no man comes to the Father but by me. That's the exclusivity of Christ. Salvation is available to all, but will only be appropriated to those who come to Christ. That There is no other way. There's only one way for these nations to be saved in the text, and there's only one way for you and I to be saved, to experience salvation from sin. But understand, that is very good news. Why? Because this one way is fully dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing that you contribute. It's nothing that I contribute, and that's a good thing. Our salvation is rooted, grounded, and dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, that is the most sure and steadfast foundation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for for this portion of Scripture. Lord, we, we learn a lot about you here. We see that you judge sin. And yet, Lord, we see your amazing grace that that you would uh, extend uh, this invitation to these pagan nations and that in your grace you would bring your people back into the land. Father, thank you for what this teaches us about yourself and about the gospel. Uh, Please help us to believe these things and apply these things. We ask this in Jesus' name.